From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where statistics, sports, and business collide, my three favorite topics. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm here with my co-hosts and friends, Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, and Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on SiriusXM, the podcast Zoom version of Wharton Moneyball. We're a show here for you, the listeners. We're going to talk about sports. We're going to talk about statistics. And of course, you can always join the conversation. Right now, it's through email, but at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. And of course, we're a very good follow on Twitter at at WMoneyball. That's at WMoneyball. So Shane and Adi, how are you guys doing today? Pretty good. Excellent. Definitely. After yesterday, pretty good. Well, so just so that our listeners here on Sirius XM and through our podcast know, we're taping this at Monday afternoon. So the reason Adi is suggesting that, and we'll get to sports, obviously, uh, in our second, third, and fourth quarters, because our first quarter we've been reserving for COVID. Um, Obviously, Adi is referring to the Yankees' win yesterday. But Shane is, of course, equally happy because the Red Sox won yesterday, too. So everybody gets to be happy today on Wharton Moneyball. And, of course, I can see this because I can see my co-host this morning. Uh, Adi, of course, is wearing a Yankee hat. Shane is wearing a Red Sox hat. So we have everybody represented today. But guys, let's start out with COVID. So one of the things I just mentioned is that we love answering questions from you, the listener, that are submitted at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. So Adi, I believe there was a question submitted by a listener about COVID. And so why don't we get started there? Let's bring the audience right in to start. Well, actually, it had to do with the framework was a, was a quote um, about basketball players. There's a, just a small, very somewhat small handful of basketball players who are holdouts and not getting their vaccine. And the real question is, what is the impact of individuals who are, who are unvaccinated on the people who are vaccinated? And that was really the, the, the thrust of the question. And if we can really um, break that down, and it's actually a question which has evolved a lot since, since the vaccines were first produced. So Adi, can you first give us an answer from the short run perspective? Like, we, I think we all agree, and you know, we can repeat this for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, unvaccinated people obviously are much more likely to get COVID. They're much more likely to get severe COVID illness if they're unvaccinated. We all know that. Now the question is, what is the short-run impact on the vaccinated? And possibly, if you would also address the longer-run impact due to mutations and other stuff that a group of unvaccinated people might have. Okay, so we'll go backwards from that, because from more uncertain to less uncertain. So the effect of the unvaccinated on the mutations and the variant, that's the thing we know the least about. And I'll just throw that out there. I know so little about it. The general scientific community is so little about it that almost any possibility is, is in, that, in that very wide, non-bell curve sense it, of distribution. Is there yeah. any reason, since we're not we're a statistics show, that a simple rule of thumb, you're a baseline guy, you've been Mr. Baseline on our show for seven plus years, that we wouldn't think of it the following way. When the number of people that get COVID goes up, then the probability of there being some mutation goes up. Therefore, the unvaccinated certainly can't be helping given they do increase the number of people with COVID. Therefore, by definition, it almost has to be tautological that the amount of mutations certainly won't go down. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, like if you'd kind of think that mutation, you know, the probability of a new variant would be somewhat proportional to kind of, 
overall viral load and the viral load on average in an unvaccinated person must be higher than on average across vaccinated people, right? Actually, that turns out that that's not turns out to not be the case. Um, so we wish that had been the, the problem. But Are you referring to that Cape Cod study that came out from Provincetown that showed that? No, they no, 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 no. You're talking lots, about lots of things. That, that, so that was one of the earliest. So there's a few issues that go into it. First of all, in general, that's the thinking the set, uh, that more more cases, more variants. The problem, of course, is this is a very large world and the variants just have to typically have come from abroad anyway. So whatever we're doing here isn't real. We're not the manufacturer of the variations. They tend to be in the much wider world that we live in. Unvaccinated, but mostly unvaccinated people. Of course. Well, so well, remember, most of the world that's been is is still unvaccinated. So this and this and it's hard to differentiate. But when it comes to the viral load, we've learned a couple of things. We've learned a couple of things. Something's good. Something's bad. Turns out, first of all, that the vaccine is the most effective against the variant that it was built on and the other variants. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be, when it comes to transmission, n- n- not that much of a difference. So we saw this early, um, the data that we, that we had from Israel, which was really good data broken up by age, showed that the percentage, that your likelihood of transmitting it or getting just getting it and transmitting it was just not that different. Um, I mentioned on my show that just a few weeks ago, um, my son got it, all his roommates got it, a lot of family members got it, everybody vaccinated, and they were all just giving it to each other. And the reason the, the viral road issue uh, that I've seen seems to see that at peak viral load for vaccine is about the same, but it gets washed out of your body much faster. Yeah. So, Adi, so, one of the things that I think, uh, just to okay, just yeah. to conclude, yeah. one of the I, it not only gets washed out faster, but one of the things I've heard many times and from guests that have been on our show is that what the vaccine actually was preventing was it getting into your lungs and therefore you're having severe illness. It's not preventing it getting into your nose, into your, into your body. That's actually not even what it was designed for. They'd be happy if it's, if it prevented that, but in some sense, I hate to say it given, I know one of the other things you're going to talk about is the uncertainty in long-term COVID and what's the effect. But at the end of the day, they created a vaccine to keep people out of the hospital and getting severe symptoms. Bingo. And just to follow up on that, there's two types of immunoglobulins, these antibodies. Some are in the nose and some are, there in the, are in the lungs. The ones that are in the lungs are the ones that are present in large numbers made by the vaccine. The mucosa, the lining of the lung, nose, just doesn't have that much, which is why it is spreading so naturally and quickly, even among the vaccinated. And that's something that was a little bit surprising. That's what that Provincetown uh, study Yep. intimated was happening. That's what the data from around the world has shown, which leads to, you know, vaccines can work in two ways. They can work by preventing illness and they work can by preventing spread or some combination thereof. This vaccine seems to predominantly be working by preventing illness. That's where the numbers are awesome, as in 10 to 1. And of course, Adi, that makes it, it I have to yeah. say it, but and then Shay, I'd love you to weigh in as well. That makes it unfortunate for the unvaccinated because Terribly. if it stops spread, let's imagine it cuts spread by ten to one. Well, yeah. then the unvaccinated would be, you know, what's the the? I get the benefit of the commons, but yeah. now that it doesn't prevent spread, but it actually prevents illness from the people that are vaccinated. You could make an argument given the combination of behavior and the increase in spread, that the unvaccinated are in a worse position. But Shane, what are your thoughts there as well? Well, again, coming back to like what we were talking about at the start, which is, you know, kind of the probability of a new virant variant like arising or some kind of something like that. Again, correct my logic here, but 
you know, the probability of a variant is proportional to the number of viral particles that you kind of have in your system over the entirety of an infection. And you said yourself that maybe the peak viral load is not that different between vaccinated and unvaccinated, but in vaccinated people gets washed out dramatically more. So, you know, the kind of integral, like the number of viral particles that, you know, would exist in a person over the course of an infection is less if you're vaccinated because it's washed out faster than if you're unvaccinated. So, so I still am not seeing how being yeah, back, you right? Yeah, so I mean, like, it's not about, it's not necessarily about your peak viral load. Maybe in terms of spreading, it's about your peak viral load. But in terms of like, you know, you as essentially like a substrate for a new variant come uh, arising, I kind of feel like if, if it's, if it, if being vaccinated, you know, basically reduces the time that you're infected, how can that not help? All right. So well, let me ask before you answer that, Adi, let me ask I'm not going to be able to answer it. I'm gonna, no, I'm no, no, but I want to ask a question. question. <laughs> let me ask a question, and you may yeah. not know the answer to this either. Is it at all possible that one of the benefits, I, I'm just asking a question. I have no idea if it's possible. Is it possible that the vaccine, people that are vaccinated, even if they have similar viral load at peak, but it lasts shorter, is it possible that their mutation rate is lower? Okay, so I'm going to answer that question easily. I don't know. <laughs> These are way above my pay grade. But I'll throw in my one answer to Kate is, sound, to, to Shane, sorry. Uh, it sounds great, but here's the complexity. And this is, this is a, the Pfizer, the Pfizer and the, and, the, and the Moderna vaccine are not, they're, they're, they're vaccines, they create a protein. They make your body create a protein and you create a response to that. This is not the virus. It's which, right. which creates a much broad-based um, uh, immune response. So the problem that people are, are raising, which makes it complex, and I don't know the answer to, is that it's the complexity between a natural infection, the, the immunity comes by natural infection, and the immunity comes by vaccines. So there are those who are saying, in country, is that we actually are benefiting from the unvaccinated because they're creating a nice buffer zone of natural immunity, killing themselves in the process, but we'll just let that be um, kind of. And, and then, so the counter argument is, is that these things are going in two directions, more people getting the virus, but producing a greater variety of immune, immuno um, uh, uh, antibodies, which actually prevents more variants. I'll throw that out. I don't know the answer to it. I'll just say that it's, it's, it's it's effing complex. <laughs> this is certainly an interest. Uh, that's certainly an interesting theory. So you're listening to Wharton Moneyball here on here on Sirius XM, the podcast edition. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both professor of statistics, some combination of the three of us, and Cade Massey here every week here on Sirius XM uh, podcast. So I had some very specific questions about COVID. I wanted to ask you guys that have popped up in the last week. So the first one which is, I think, potentially a big game changer, which is potentially a big game changer, is the Merck pill. Now, first, I wanted to get your reaction to it. And then Shane or Adi, Shane, I'll go to you first. Just to comment to people again, people hear 50% effective and they think that means I have a 50% chance of getting the virus. We know that's not true. So, both, it's been told that it's said that it's 50% effective. So first, can you explain to our listeners again what 50% effectiveness means and why you think an oral pill may be a game changer here? 
Well, it's an antiviral, right? So it's not going, it's not designed to prevent infection at all. That's correct. It's essentially designed to treat or like help with essentially your, your, your kind of health outcome. Yeah, it's a 50%. Yeah, good infected. point. It's a 50% reduction in hospitalization and death. It right. does not, it, it is not a preventive. A vaccine prevents you from getting it. This is not a vaccine. Yeah, so what is right. 50? So just maybe I'll just go through the numbers quickly for everybody. Um, let's just say there's a thousand people in the population. And let's say the hospitalization and death rate is 1%, which means that in general, 10 people out of 1,000 would have hospitalization and death due to COVID. A 50% reduction would say, well, it's not 10 anymore, it's five. And just to give people a sense, the vaccine is 99% effective. That number 10 goes down to one-tenth of one person. And so just to give you a sense of the relative efficacy, you'd much rather have something 95% effective than 50% effective because one takes the number from 10 to five. The other one takes the number from 10 to 0.5. And some sense that's a 10 to one relative odds. And that's a huge, huge magnitude of difference. But I'd love to hear your thoughts because I'm sure you heard about the Merck pill. It has to have a big impact because now there'll be a second line of defense even for people that get the illness, now you could take a pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. It's the thing is that fifty percent is on top of whatever the vaccine protects against. So you that's get the what I was going to ask once you. you turn up, but also it, it eliminates the anxiety. Think about it. When you say say ninety nine percent, if that's effective against serious, serious illness and death, it does. It's not nearly that effective against getting an active case. Not nearly. Not even close to that. And that may be even only two to one, um, or even you might even just say fifty percent effective against get, getting an active case. So, yeah, almost every active case turns into just a uh, not something that's just quite mild. But if I can take that pill and, and know that I've got an extra factor of two diminishment risk of being hospitalized. I know I've had some pretty bad illness in my life that I wasn't hospitalized with that felt like crap. And mm-hmm. you worry that you're going to get hospitalized or things can go really can go south fast. Getting an extra factor two makes you feel a lot better. But just to put it in context, the, the um, monoclonal antibodies, antibodies are four to one. Um, this is one. To, this is two to one. I mean, this is not two to one. One to one. Eighty um, percent reduction for the monoclonal antibodies. So, no, of course, of course, harder. It has to be given intravenously. You yeah, can't yeah, have yeah. it. Not just the expense. Also, um, you can't get like I just give you a package of pills and tell you to take them home with you. That's right. Yeah, and your yeah. Is there any reason to believe you made a statement which I hadn't thought about? But you might. Maybe it is true. Can I just take whatever pro- if I'm vaccinated? Can I just take that probability and now cut it in half with these pills? Like, is it obvious that they're independent of each other and that I can simply just divide, if you'd like, by, you know, if my, let's say my, let's say it was 95% effective uh, for health, uh, for hospitalization and death with the uh, uh, vaccine. Can I just take that remaining 5% and just say I'm now saving 50% of that or Adi, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's complicated. Ideally, we'd have statistical data. We have an experiment that could say that it's independent. We don't have that data. It's it's it really it requires massive amounts of data in a randomized trial to figure that out. But biologically, they think that it is independent. Now, is that medically, biologically, is that something enough? We know enough times that the biological and medical obvious solution turned out to not be true. Um, But at least from my conversations with the doctors that I'm working with on the coronavirus project here have suggested that independence is a is a reasonable assumption. 
So and I mean, question, it, it's yeah, worth sorry, clarifying ahead, that this is not kind of across the entire population of individuals. This is con- essentially conditional on people who have been hospitalized, right? Well, it's 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 a trial, so so they they give it to people um, early after, stage, early after, stage, and they see that they do fifty percent better. Yeah, these but, people aren't so, hospitalized so, so, yet. Uh, it's a little weaker than I thought, but it's conditional on a symptomatic infection. I, I'm not even sure it is. Um, they're just giving it to random people, like, like no, no, people who test positive. Yeah, you okay. might be test positive, but asymptomatic. But you ask a great question, Shane. If I, I test I just positive, kinda, I kind of wonder how those asymptomatic people are getting into this study, right? Because I, I mean, I get they're you know, I mean, I guess you could have asymptomatic people that are being regularly tested because it's mandated yeah. for them or something like that. But I mean, most asymptomatic people, which is still a big chunk of the population, wouldn't ever be kind of involved in this, right? Absolutely. I mean, you got to get you got to get in the net somehow. So my sister, who who had Moderna vaccine, her son got COVID. They all tested as a matter of course. Yeah. Turned positive. Miserable quarantine. Not a single symptom, not a sniffle, nothing. Never would have noticed. No, but uh, Shane, you bring up a great point, which is suppose I told you you had a a drug, a pill that was 98 percent effective. And you're like, that sounds fantastic. And then I said, oh, did I forget to tell you? that it's only 98% effective on the asymptomatic. And by the way, we don't do enough testing, so you wouldn't know if you're asymptomatic and have it. And then you're like, wow, that's great. I got a big, I, I was able to prevent this, but who knows, you know, in some sense. It's 98% effective, but you got to know when to take it without yeah, exactly. of when to take it. You're, well, you're bringing up an important point, which is what you're also suggesting, which you've been suggesting from the beginning, is that this is an argument not against widespread testing, but for widespread oh, testing. Yeah. People are like, mm-hmm. oh, well, now I've got a pill. So if I get it, I get it. I'll just pop some pills. If, as far as we know, it might be too late. You might be too symptomatic. So again, it's, this, it's not only heterogeneous and its effect across people, but it's heterogeneous depending on stage. And so that, fifth, that one-to-one that Adi talked about, I'm making it up, might be 30% effective once you're heavily symptomatic, as far as we know. It's hard, it's hard to know. Yeah. So guys, no. I had another another question I wanted to ask you relating. So that was obviously a big deal. Um, let's go back to one of our favorite topics, which is uncertainty. So if I had told you three months ago, which is June, when or June, July, when we all thought things were on the decline, that three months later, we would have almost 2,000 deaths per day due to COVID. What probability would you have put on that? And what does that teach us all about what I'll call confidence intervals, how wide they need to be? Because I think most of us, given the number of cases was down, maybe even down to 20, 30,000 a day, we would have put that the probability of 2,000 deaths per day would have been less than 1%. Like, no way is that going to be true three months from now. So any thoughts on that? It was something that caught my eye, just that we're getting massive numbers of deaths. We're almost back. We're not back to the 3,000 plus a day that we had at its peak, but 2,000 deaths a day is nothing to, no, I'm not trying to pay a pun here. It's nothing to sneeze at. That's a big number of deaths. It is. And I mean, I, I mean, I think the, I mean, again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go back and, you know, it's, it's hard to be retrospective about something that, you know, that happened, but like, I kind of feel like the probability of, of this happening should have been higher just because, you know, I mean, we still don't really understand the seasonality of this thing, you know, that so three months ago versus, you know, three months ahead, we don't necessarily know just kind of in the absence of, you know, a a more high spreading variant, you know, whether we would have kind of gone, had a wave anyway. And then of course we did have a more high spreading variant 
pop up. And that that probability, obviously, there probably should lower bound that as at a few percent, too, because we've had, you know, since since even the vaccines have come out, we've had, you know, however many uh, variants, you know, five, ten variants that have already popped up. So I feel like this kind of, you know, uh, the probability of a new variant changing, essentially, our, our, our forecast has got to be, you know, I mean, I would probably lower bound that probability of five, 10 percent, just even as we sit here today. So that was what I was going to ask you. And maybe, Adi, you could comment on Shane's point there. Do you think there's a five or 10 percent probability that there's a, you know, eps, pick, pick your favorite Greek letter past Delta, which I know they've used a bunch of them already, actually. But, you know, what are the chances that there's another variant and another wave that even makes the and you even I'll tie it back to something you said earlier in the show, Adi, that makes even the vaccines we've received maybe not as effective? I, 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 anything with Corona, I would never put a, a smaller than 10% probability on ever. <laughs> I, just, I don't care what it is. Green monster coming down from the sky and stamping on it. I don't know. It's proven so unpredictable. Um, so you, you, you kind of have, there's two sorts of variation. There's the model, you know, within model variation. And then there's the variation due to the fact the model just is wrong. So I would say that that within model, I think the, that those probabilities are small, but the model that we have could be fundamentally wrong in some way. And, and that probability is just isn't, isn't small enough to ignore no matter what. Um, I, interestingly enough, um, and I'm a little disappointed, I just did a quick search. The, uh, we used to track excess deaths. Um, right. And they gave that up. The, the, and uh, in this last wave, there isn't any actual uh, accounting of deaths versus actual deaths versus expected deaths or typical deaths. Now, maybe there's a lag on that. That might take a few months before you can really dig into that. Because some of the things is that we're hearing now is that a lot of these, they're testing anybody and everybody who gets corona um, and, and who is in the hospital. And if you show up with a positive test and then you die in the hospital, they're not we're really not that good at teasing out those differentials. Right. So in the beginning, when we had massive cor- coronavirus deaths, that was in the rounding error. Here, when the deaths are much smaller and testing is so widespread, I'm not so sure it's in the rounding error. Um, we have a lot more deaths here in the United States from COVID than they're reporting in Europe. Um, although much our cases more. are not that much more. The deaths are way out of whack. And I don't get that because our vaccination rates are not that out of whack with Europe. Um, they, and maybe it has to do with the, the heterogeneity, heterogeneity, the fact that we have whole swaths of the country where the vaccination rates are way lower. Um, and so our, our hospitals balance, are like more. Yeah. Like so so I find this a little bit confusing and um, and I'm not really sure what's going on here because our death rates are sort of I mean, they're kind of appalling. Um, right. Relative to other Western countries that are with with vaccinations rates that, uh, that are relatively as high as ours. It could be our, our, our just lack of um, we're just in bad shape. I mean, and, and the, the the comorbidity, everybody talks about immunocompromisation, compromising. But I think that's really probably not any different here than in the U.S. But we are fatter and more diabetic than much of Europe. And that's a bad problem when it comes to covid. Um, speaking as yeah, so that, I mean, that would be the kind of interesting to kind of put that in a statistical sense. Like if you actually took, say, our death, you know, death rate by country and regressed it on, you know, case 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 rate plus all the comorbidity stuff like, you know, obesity, mm-hmm. et cetera, like that. Would America still have kind of I mean, you're sort of saying that if you just basically predict uh, death rate by by just case rate, America has a very positive residual, like a much higher. Death yeah, rate way, way, way higher. That's right. Like if you if you then kind of throw the, all the comorbidity information, the regression, would America still have 
positive. Don't know the answer. But I can yeah. tell you, I'm disappointed with, now it could be because we have such heterogeneity in vaccine rates. The South, which has been hit the hardest, that's the area of the country where you'll have pockets where the vaccine rates are under 30%. And that might just be too, just almost as if, you know, way too little. And you really have to be over 65, 70 among adults to see a, a, at least a herd immunity like or an effect. So that I could have, be part of it. But I'm, I'm, as a whole, the United States should be pretty disappointed. I have to imagine that the analysis that Shane just laid out to us, which would be a, let's call it a comorbidity adjusted death rate. I've got to believe that that model would explain not all, but a significant fraction of the excess death rate of the U.S. in comparison to other countries. I would just have to believe. I mean, it's not just comorbidity. I mean, I guess you could call this a comorbidity, but the main comorbidity besides just like obesity and stuff like that is age, right? Like so any any kind of even subtle differences in the age distribution between, you know, the U.S. and some nation that we're comparing to could, you know, fairly dramatically affect the death rate, right? Because, the, the you know, the, obviously the death rate is so sensitive to age for COVID. Yep. So guys, let me, in our last few minutes of our COVID segment, and this is uh, Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, professors of statistics. We're here on Wharton Moneyball, some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on the Wharton Moneyball Zoom edition. And again, just like we answered a question from one of our listeners, you too can join in at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That's moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. You can also, and we hope you follow us on Twitter at WMoneyball. So guys, in the last few minutes, we have of segment number one here. Um, this is a good question. I don't think we've asked in about a month or so, but let's keep doing it throughout while we're having a COVID segment. Um, what's the one that I'll start with you, Shane? What's the one thing you would like to have the answer to right now when it, as it relates to COVID? What's the one thing you'd like to know? And then Adi, I'll go to you, of course. I mean, I guess this is a relatively nebulous question, but is, you know, are we are we anywhere close to her to me? Like like what are, like are are the values that we would need to have in terms of vaccination um, anywhere close to what we need for herd immunity? Are we like just a couple percent off from like actually kind of achieving herd immunity, at least in the areas where there's higher vaccination or, you know, with the Delta variant and, 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 and kind of the variants that are coming down the pike? Um, are we nowhere near it? Because, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, we, we, you know, as a society, we need to know how much extra effort we need to kind of pour into continuing to try and get people vaccinated. Um, and it just I, I kind of want to know how, how close to the margin we are on that. Well, you bring up an interesting point, Shane, because in some sense, you know, we're at 90, you know, we're at 78 percent of the 18 plus population that has at least one dose. Mm-hmm. Obviously, some fraction of the remainder have gotten COVID already. And in some sense, you know, those numbers we heard with the alpha variant, like, well, 70 percent will get herd immunity. Well, we know that's not true now. Then maybe six months ago, Adi gave us maybe it was an updated number. I don't know, 90 percent, maybe it's 95 percent. But what that suggests is it's the amount of effort it's going to take to reach that because, you know, getting those last 20 something percent vaccinated might be a, you know, a never ending battle. And in some sense, yeah, we could let more people die and COVID will burn through everybody that doesn't have it yet. But eventually it's going to be really hard. You're right. The difference between 90 percent and 95 percent would be huge to know that difference. Yeah, Adi? 
A comment to, to, sh- to Shane before I give you my question. Sure. I think that like Iceland had some ridiculously high vaccination rate among adults, like 95%, yet they still had Delta run, run yeah. over. I actually think that when you're dealing with a variant, herd immunity is just irrelevant anymore. It yeah. just has to do with uh, therapeutic uh, protection, like how badly, what's your morbidity? What, what happens to you when you get it? What's your mortality? What, will you die? So, um, um, and so I actually think that herd immunity is just not a thing uh, because it just, it'll change, right? But my, my uncertainty is this. I, since I last been on the show, which is a couple of weeks ago because of Jewish holidays, I got my, my third booster. I don't know if you guys are, are, are going to get yours, but I got mine. Um, we all are eligible. If you're in the classroom, you, you immediately became eligible because you're a teacher, frontline. I see 300 students. Um, they did, turned out they didn't even ask me when I walked in um, what, what my uh, need is, my classification, because not all Americans are, are recommended for it. Um, and my question is, well, what's the booster done for me? <laughs> and, um, and what, so for this variant, the Delta variant, and, and things that are currently seen, What's that done? Has it moved my probability of uh, hospitalization from X to Y? Has it moved my uh, probability of getting infected from Z to Q? Um, And finally, what will it do against future variants? That's what I want to know. Now, I'll give you my hints of what I think the answers are. Based on Israeli data, they're always uh, six to eight weeks ahead. They've given the Delta, the the booster, um, at least two months ago, they started giving it to um, adults. And they're noticing that the people who've been boosted are 100 to 1. I mean, factor of 10 better off than those. Yeah, I've heard factor of 10 is what I've heard. Yeah, which is an enormous increase. It's amazing. And, and it's, that, it's, just to clarify, that's again on like hospitalizations and deaths or on uh, actual uh, infection? Both, both the infection rates, they, they report on their website. You can go and click around. Um, Google will translate it. You can click on active infections. The rate's about 10 to 1. Seriousness, serious illness. Among under 50, there are so few cases that you don't even have an estimate. It's so, it's so inconsequentially, um, uh, uh, the numbers are so small. Um, so that data suggests that the booster is really good, at least for the Delta. So my real in, in question would be, what's, am I going to get an, and it's going to help with future variants? And I have no clue. Well, well for, the good news is Wharton Moneyball will continue. We'll be able to answer that as more data comes out. That's what we're here for, here to our audience to answer these questions. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm here with my co-hosts, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner, both professors of statistics. Some combination of the two of us, or three of us, and Kate Massey are here every week on the podcast Zoom edition of Wharton Moneyball. So guys, we spent the first quarter talking about COVID. Um, In Q4, like we've been doing every week, if you'd like, for the last 20 months or so, we have a guest. Uh, Shane is going to interview Josh Polkamp-Hart on hockey analytics. I believe he's with the Boston Bruins. And obviously, you know, I know on our show, it doesn't get as much airtime, if you'd like, as others. But hockey's starting up, and uh, it started up. And, um, you know, it'll be great to hear about hockey analytics as well. We need to give all the major sports enough time. But, guys, obviously you guys are sitting here, Adi with his Yankee hat on, Shane with his Red Sox hat on. So I had a bunch of questions I wanted to walk you through that were I, I thought were interesting from a statistical perspective that related to baseball. And maybe we'll try to get through a bunch of them. So I'll call on you guys in some various order, but we'll try to do it like two or three minutes per topic. We'll try to do the rapid fire round around baseball. So let's start with the beginning. Um, 
This one is not directly related to the Yankees or Red Sox, but it is. So Shane, if I had told you to build a simulator to simulate the 2021 MLB season, what do you think are the chances that four teams would have been within one game of each other for the wild card spots after 161 games? And what do you think the fact is it is? So the fact that it did, what would that tell you maybe about your simulator? Like I could develop lots of simulators and simulate a billion seasons, a hundred thousand seasons, and I'm not sure I would ever get four teams locked within one game of each other fighting for two wild card spots. So what are your thoughts about like just kind of the closeness of the race? And is there an explanation for it in some way? Well, I, I mean, I think uh, partly the, that simulator would, you know, I mean, like all these simulators would be based on like, you know, some assumptions that each game is independent of, of the others. And obviously, you know, there is some non-independent behavior that happens like four teams that are kind of close to contention. So, I mean, there's some things driving us away from independence in this case, right? If teams are kind of very close to that sort of, you know, close to that wild card spot, they will continue playing their best players. You know, they, they're not going to like, you know, use as many of their kind of September call-ups, et cetera. So I think, you know, whatever that simulator gave us as a probability is probably is, is low, essentially relative to the true probability because you know teams teams are you know these games aren't actually truly independent near the end of the season because teams you know essentially teams can kind of show a little bit of marginal differences in effort you know you know right you know if they are kind of close to that contention line any Adi any thoughts of yours about why you know why we had like when will be the next time again we see four teams battling within one game of each other not up to the last two weeks of the season the last day of the season how rare an event you're mr rarity you know is this a two sigma three sigma five sigma event how like is it in our lifetime we're going to see this again well we saw it so i'll be a baseline guy (laughs) 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 it's happened once so i'm gonna i'm ready to take off the table anything less than one and And we've only only had the two team wild card for like a couple seasons so the probability is like a half right right so I'm going to say that I, I can't, I don't think it's going to be, I think it'll, it might happen another 20 with another 20 years. I mean, let's just put it into context. There are the uh, standard deviation is about uh, 12 games um, across the, uh, across the teams. Um, so what so is that? When you team, say standard deviation, you mean if you, if your if your true strength is 85 wins, you're going to be somewhere between plus or minus 20. It's lower than that. That's about 10. The standard deviation in wins, just you take the 30 teams and, and then you just look at the distribution and wins oh, around oh, okay. 81. Uh, it's around 12. So uh, you just throw down the teams, and then you basically you're looking for a, a, a one a one um, wins interval. And how what's how likely is it that four teams will land in one win interval? It seems kind of small because the that's my point. Up. That's you're exactly yeah. addressing but, my but point. I, I will just also point out. I mean, part of the kind of reason to have a wild card is you keep more teams in contention. Close yeah, to the end of the season. Like, I mean, focusing just on division winners, those are kind of the teams that are in the tails. And, you know, that's you, obviously there's not going to be that many teams that can kind of put together 100 win seasons, et cetera, right. to kind of win a division. All right. Well, let's but keep you're, going you're on. almost like trying to target a greater number of teams with the wild card. For sure. Let's keep going on. But this is related. So I'm going to read you guys some numbers and let's take them one at a time. And let's let's talk about the predictions at the beginning of the season. So here we go. The Yankees were predicted at 97 wins. I think they ended up at 92. So no shock there. That's not so bad, right? Um, Toronto was predicted at 91 wins. I think that's right on. I think they might have won exactly 91 games. Um, 
The Rays were predicted at 86. So that's starting to get a little bit off. I think they won 100 games. Yeah, 100 for sure. They won 100. Yeah. The Red Sox were predicted at 80. Losing team, the Red Sox. And they yeah. ended up obviously at 92. Um, let's go to a few others. Seattle was predicted at 69 wins. Yeah. 69. They won 91. Then, of course, the big one. The Giants were predicted with 79 wins, and they won 107 games. So, Adi, I'll start with you. These seem like massive prediction errors. You know, maybe the, you know, the Rays won 14 more. Okay. The Red Sox won 12 more. So now we're starting to say, well, maybe it's not that rare. Seattle won 22 more. The Giants won 28 more. How rare is that? That seems, that seems like a prediction error that we probably haven't seen any time that I, I can't think back to something where that we had that big of a prediction error, right? I, I'm thinking these models are, are, are potentially overfit because how can you get variance that wide unless you're putting factors in the model that don't really belong there, giving you variance in Y hat, the predicted value, that's really not due, that's really undue. But um, do we think these people that build simulators don't know the concept of out-of-sample prediction? They do. They but do, but we had it a weird year. I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the big kind of things going in as a predictor is how teams did last season. Last season was a weird season, right? I mean, it was yeah, like, you know, um, you, I, I think maybe these models were, I mean, I completely agree with Audie. I think these models are probably specifically overfit essentially on last season. And may, maybe that kind of in an out of sample sense, you generally want to focus on the previous season, but because this particular previous season was such a weird one, you know, with the truncated schedule and all kinds of. That's, all, all you bring all up a very stuff. interesting general statistical question, Shane, which is, you know, one of the things we kind of know in statistics is if we build what's called an autoregressive model. So we're trying to predict YT, let's see the current period from YT minus one, which is last period, YT minus two, et cetera. This is downward sloping. It always is. In other words, YT minus one is more predictive of YT than YT minus two, YT minus three, et cetera. You're bringing up an interesting phenomenon that might just be, and I'd love to hear from our listeners on this. Tweet us at WMoneyBall. Send us an email, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. What you're describing may be a general phenomenon in business. Maybe because last period was COVID, and there was just huge uncertainty or non-stationarity or things that don't apply, this may not be true just of baseball. This might be true of all kinds of prediction problems where people are building these kind of state-dependent auto-regressive models, and I think that's likely to be true. It's an interesting, it's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah, and no, like, I mean, I'd love, I mean, next time, next time uh, Cade's with us, we'll have to kind of ask him about Massey Peabody and, and the football predictions. Cause I could imagine similarly last season, maybe is a little bit less predict. I mean, maybe fo- football was the one that kind of got through their kind of usual see, you know, is the same length of season and everything. So maybe that one, you know, maybe last season is, you know, as similarly predictive as it usually is, but, um, but for the other sports, certainly hockey and basketball, I feel like I would be cautious about putting the same weight on last season as I usually do if I'm doing a, a forecasting model. Yep. All right. Let's keep going on. So guys, um, let's continue on with our mispredictions. Maybe this is the same thing. Adi, let's, Adi, let's start with you. So we made a prediction at the beginning of the season that we thought someone would win 100 games. I think we all made that prediction that somebody would. Turns out three teams won 100 games this year. I think that might be above what many of us would have thought, but not totally out of bounds. 
But if I had told you it would have been the Giants and the Rays, that's my question to you, Adi. So how do you reconcile? Yeah, I said somebody would win 100 games, except if I had asked you to bet if it would, certainly the Giants would have been totally out of the question. But the Giants and the Rays. So any thoughts about that? About It's yeah. not just about predicting any team, but would you have predicted these teams? Okay, well, going backwards, we tied the conversation uh, fairly far into the season where nobody was projecting anywhere close to 100 wins, which is why it even came up as a conversation. Because after about a third of the season, the, the Giants weren't sticking out. And, and I remember discussing it, and I think it was something like nine out of the last ten seasons. It's, it's, a, it's a very common occurrence. So just by baselining it, you'd expect to see someone do it. I would have expected the Dodgers to do it. In fact, they did do it, and they did do it easily. They were my, they were my champions early on because on paper they look great, and they are great. Um, I would never have predicted the Giants. I thought they were – I mean, they were doing well at that point. So it's, it's true that I would have given them more probability – than other teams because they were around 600 at that time. And I just was expecting them to regress and they never did. They, they went the other way. So there's certainly, but the, the Rays were excellent and we knew the Rays were excellent. Um, we forecasted them to be not as good as the, the Yankees. Um, but by the, by a third of the season, they, they looked pretty darn good. Um, but I, of course I wouldn't, I wouldn't have predicted either of them to do it um, because they were, that still was a far, far big forecast. But uh, the fact that they were three, I don't think we should be that surprised by that. Yep. I think it also, by the way, there were some really bad teams. And look, here's the one thing about baseball. The total average winning percentage is 50%, right? I mean, people play each other. So there were also some really bad teams this year, which led to the, you know, in some sense. You kind of need those for the 100 win teams. You need the 100 loss teams in there too. Well, just I mean, yeah, you so don't just, technically, but you use those usually do go together. Yeah. What was interesting about the Rays is that if you look at their record, the reason they ended up seven or eight games ahead of the Yankees and the um, Blue Jays is because I think they were it was eight. It was either 18 and one or 17 and two against the Orioles. And so they had a seven game differential against the Orioles that the Yankees went like 10 and seven or 10 and nine or 11 and eight. But the Rays went like 18 and one. So there were seven games right there. If you eliminate those games, those two teams were equal which was kind of that's was kind of an equal postmortem. And we had like we had like two or three teams with 100 losses, right? The Orioles definitely. I think the Pirates had 100 losses. I'm not sure if there's anybody else in there, but that, that uh, sounds no. about oh, so, right. So Yankees went 10 and 9 against the Red Sox or 9 and 10. They 9 lost. and 10. And uh they did well against the, the Rays too. They what was do you remember what the overall record against the Rays was? It was, they were kind of close. The, the, and that American League East is brutal. I mean, there's just no way to describe well, it. Yeah, I mean, the fact that, like, basically three of the four teams that were in that wild card yeah. contention were all from the same division is pretty right. striking. Well, it's, it's It means they must have beaten up on someone else, too, because they play each other 19 times. So, guys, let's talk about another topic, and then I'm going to get back to the specific game that's about to happen on Tuesday. But we always talk about let's call it tournament design because one of the things that's interesting as statisticians is trying to understand how the design of the if you'd like in this case tournament affects potential outcomes so one of the questions is um i thought the strangest thing i heard was this three-way tie-breaking rule so listen to this let's say there had been a three-way tiebreaker for the second wild card spot Okay. Like for example, suppose the, let's say yesterday, suppose the Yankees had lost, the Red Sox had won. So the Red Sox would have been the one. Suppose the Yankees, Toronto and Seattle would have been tied for the second wildcard spot. Here's the way the tiebreaker would have gone. The Yankees in Toronto would have played each other. Okay. 
The winner of that's not in the wild card game. The winner of that game advances to the next game. And then the loser, in other words, there's this strange situation where the third team, the, the worst of the three teams based on tiebreakers, gets a home field advantage game against the loser of that game. Maybe I'm thinking, sorry, maybe I'm thinking of the scenario where three teams were tied for two spots. That's what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Let's take a scenario where the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Blue Jays have been tied for two spots. The Yankees are the worst of those three. Toronto and the Red Sox would have played each other in Boston. The winner of that game would have been in the wild card. The loser of that game would have been at Yankees to see who else would be in the wild card game. Now, the logic behind that is, well, the Red Sox and Toronto would have two chances to make the wild card game, but the third place team actually gets home field advantage in the one game that they get to play. I just found that a very strange design. Like, why should they? I understand why it happens. That let's say the Red Sox are playing Toronto, that game would count towards the regular season, which yeah. means that team would be a half game. I get it conceptually, but why shouldn't the loser of that game host the third well, place? I, team? I, I mean, like, you know, let, let me, I, I guess I'll, I'll take up this argument in sure. that, you know, I mean, these three teams are tied at the end of the season. Yep. Tiebreakers are fairly arbitrary. Head to head, you're giving against each other. Well, right. But still, regardless, you're doing this on a tiebreaker. And so, you know, that third team has a distinct disadvantage of only having one shot at the playoffs as opposed to two. And so you counterbalance that a bit by making them the home team. And it's not it's not much of a counterbalance. They clearly have the lowest probability of, of, of the three. Right. There's no doubt about it. And you bring up the important effect size. Look, I'd much rather have two. Look, this is why people said, well, if you know, by the way, Strangely enough, let me say the design, Shane, which is even more insidious. The Red Sox or Toronto, being ahead of the Yankees, could pick that third spot. But nobody in their right mind would pick one game to get in versus two. So even though Toronto, in theory, would pick before the Yankees, there's no way they're going to say, well, we want one game, winner take all home field. 25 home field advantage or something, like some ridiculous thing that you never have in baseball in order to make that decision. So let's build on that, Adi. Let me ask you another question. I know it just happens this way. Is it fair that the 106-win Dodgers are in a one-game winner-take-all against the Cardinals who just finished winning like 18, 19 straight? I mean, the Dodgers won 106 games. Unfortunately, the Giants won 107. Do you think, you know, if you had – is that a fair way to do it? What do you think, Adi? Any thoughts about the, uh, the Dodgers here? So, I, I mean, I don't know if there's any fair way to do it. I mean, the bottom line is – the winning the division means something and they didn't get it. I mean, they had to have this unbelievable luck of going against the giants. And I still like the idea that winning the division matters. And cause that is something that's that they play more games against their division. I mean, it's not fair, but it's certainly more fair than what happened before the wild card when they just be sitting at home. Well, Shane, let me ask you a different question. Should they recede? Is it fair to the giants? Adi wants to be fair, the division winner. How about now, if the Dodgers beat the Cardinals, the Giants don't get to play the 90-win Braves or the 90-win whoever won the other division there. They have to play the 106-win Dodgers. Is that fair to the Giants? Why don't they at least reseed? I understand it's a one-game in, but let's reseed. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I don't really have a strong argument against the reseeding. I think that is kind of, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's how they do it in football, right? They reseed, uh, you know, I, so yes, no, I think... Uh, 
I think the receding is a good idea, but I, I'm with Audi. I kind of, I mean, I, I think the winning the, the division should have an advantage to it. It has, it has value and you want to keep that value, but I like kind of having the wild cards because you don't want that to be the entirety of the value. I, I will amend my revised thing to saying that they should reseed afterwards. Yeah. And, by, and by the way, I'm pretty sure Tampa Bay, if they got to pick, wouldn't necessarily pick paying the Yankee Red Sox winner. I'm not sure they would pick either of those two teams over the, I guess it would be the White Sox and the, is it the Astros? Those are the yeah. other two teams. I'm not sure who, they'd probably pick the White Sox. I'm not sh- exactly sure. But let's actually turn to the game that's being played tomorrow, because again, we're, uh, we're taping this on Monday. The Yankees at Red Sox for the wild card game. Now, what's interesting about this, well, do you go, I happen to know the answer, so I'll just ask you, who do you think's favored in the game? Yankees, right? Don't they, they are? Cool? But but the reason is because Garrett Cole is pitching yeah. against Avaldi, who, by the way, is the, you know no scrub either. But um, no Garrett he, Cole either. <laughs> he's not Garrett Cole either. By the way, Garrett Cole, by the way, has like a five ERA against the Red Sox this year, and so has not pitched particularly well against the Red Sox. Another interesting stat I thought of, and then I want to hear your reaction to the Yankees being favored. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen this. The Yankees were forty six and thirty five this season at home and 46 and 35 on the road. The Yankees had the exact same home record and road record this year, 46 and 35. So I know what I want to hope and dream that the Yankees win the game, but I'll start with you, Shane. Should the Yankees really be favored in this game? Yeah, I think, I mean, I I think, you know, the having, you know, one of, one of the top three pitchers in baseball taking the mound for you um, probably, um, in my mind, you know, is it confers more of an advantage than whatever the home field kind of usual advantage is, especially because the Yankees don't appear, at least this season, to be pretty robust to any kind of visitor disadvantage. Adi, what do you think? You like the Yankees uh, yeah, in the I game? Think the, call, the call advantage is sufficiently large. I also think a lot of the home field advantage in baseball, at least theoretically, should come from the, uh, the design of your team to match your home, your home field. And the Yankees sort of stupidly, in some sense, missed the boat on that. I mean, until they picked up Rizzo and Gallo, and I think Gallo's a dud. I don't know what you think. I think Gallo's a strikeout machine um, and not worthy of being in the, in the lineup. And I think he'll probably strike out four times tonight. Um, but Or tomorrow right, night. But, tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow Let's night. be but real I, about but it. But the Yankees, with their, their, until they picked them up, they were all righties. And I'm like, what are you doing? Um, Yankees, if you don't use those who don't know, Yankees have a ridiculously short porch out in right field. And, and, uh, and, and of course, uh, Fenway Park is a ridiculously short porch in left field. So it's kind of stacked up for the Yankees um, to do well at Fenway. So let me ask you, do you, um, do you put any stock in the fact, it, does this change your probability at all? And I'm, I'm sure your guys are going to say no. I don't want to say momentum. The Yankees, if I'm right, just did go to Fenway and one swept the Red Sox. Yeah. Does that, is that worth anything to you? I'll start with Mr. Red Sox, Shane Jensen. I, I, I don't just going to move the needle, needle in any kind of really substantive way. But I mean, if I was the Red Sox, I mean, the memory of that, you know, that like sweep is pretty fresh. It's certainly fresh in my mind. That was a very miserable weekend to be watching baseball. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that does have some amount. I mean, I, I think it's a greater microcosm that like, you know, the Yankees seem to be a very streaky team this season. And they're currently streaking in the they're, they're, they're in the up direction as far as their streakiness goes. So. You know that yeah, you know, it, it 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 probably doesn't move the needle substantially, but I would certainly factor it in. 
Well, Adi, in our uh, last, yeah, go ahead, uh, Adi, yes, please. Yeah, this will, of course, will be settled after, uh, when you, when John, you're listening to this, you will know we'll have won. But I can tell you right now, if you're going to walk down Lansdowne Street, when Stanton is up, make sure you have something over your head. <laughs> yeah, so this guy, this guy is hitting it real hard right now. And actually, by the way, it just reminds me of one thing in our last 60 seconds here, um, about choices that managers make in baseball. I mean, Adi and I were thrilled by this. But you have to explain to me why the Tampa Bay Rays pitched to Aaron Judge with men on second and third and one out in the bottom of the ninth. I don't understand it. Um, it's not just because Aaron Judge is up and he's probably the Yankees' best contact hitter, but you load the bases, you force, you get the double play, you get the force at home. It made no sense to me whatsoever. And I started to think, you know, thank you, Rays. If, that, if you were really trying to win this game, you just made a huge statistical error. It made no sense to, to pitch to Aaron Judge there. But again... It's easy to say that after the fact. So, guys, this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We're still going to talk about NFL. We still have Shane's interview with Josh Polkamp, part of the Boston Bruins in our last quarter. So stay with us and join us right after the You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, some combination of the three of us, and OID Professor Kate Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. And again, if you want to join the conversation, while we're excited that someday we will be back in the studio, you can join the conversation by tweeting at us. W Moneyball. That's at W Moneyball. You can also join the conversation by emailing us at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We actually started today's show with an Adi let out with the question that we try to take every question that comes in from our listeners. So guys, we spent the last quarter talking about the MLB, which obviously the playoffs are launching. But of course, we have the we're hot in the right in the middle of the NFL season now. We're, we're, we're almost four weeks through the season. I wanted to bring up a bunch of topics here and just get your reaction to it. And so I don't know if we talked about this. Well, we only uh, I don't think we had Shane uh, record an interview last week. We didn't have the live show last week. I wanted to get your reaction to um, Justin Tucker. I believe it was right hit a 66-yard field goal last week to win the game. Now, this is not yesterday, last week, eight days ago last week. So I just wanted to ask you, and it wasn't, by the way, it was in a dome stadium. It was against Detroit, I believe, but it wasn't, it wasn't like it was in mile high. It wasn't in, uh, it wasn't at the Broncos or anything. It wasn't a win behind them. It was in a dome stadium. Do you think there's a limit here? Like, in five years from now, are we talking about, will someone have hit a 70-yard field goal, a 75-yard field goal? I mean, where do you think things will stop? I mean, by the way, just to give everyone a, a sense, the record for, as far, since I was a kid, there was a half-footed kicker named Tom Dempsey in like the 1950s or early 60s. Matt can put up the exact year. He hit a 63-yard field goal. So the record for most of my lifetime was 63 yards. And we've just gotten to 66 yards. And so are we going to get to 70, 75? I mean, Shane, what do you think? I mean, the fact that it's taken that your lifetime to advance to three yards suggests that 70 is probably not coming down the line particularly soon. But I mean, you mentioned a few things that could kind of drive it, like an extreme wind condition or mile high. I mean, you know, I, I could see it happen. I think there's positive probability on us getting to 70, say, like, you know, in our lifetimes. But I think it's got to be 
it's got to be a pretty low probability. I mean, even this 66 yarder, I mean, he obviously, if you guys watched it, he like had to doink it off of the crossbar. It, it, it was, it was exactly a 66 yard kick. And he is the strongest and best kicker probably of all time. So, you know, getting to 70 would be very tough. I think, let me, let me, um, let me add a couple of things here. I think, I think it would be possible if those length kicks were ever attempted. But if you think about where you have to be on the field to attempt to that kind of field, that kind of uh, position, why would you take go for a field goal there? I mean, the, the odds are long. You can probably pin the, the team with a deep punt and get, a, get expected value. It, that way. Be, it essentially has to be like an end of game situation. Yeah, like, yeah, like it know, was, like it was with the Ravens. Which it was. So yeah. you're looking at you're looking at maybe a couple times a season where you even right. be in that position, and then then the, then it has to be the right kicker, and then they have to of course have the right wind conditions, and they have to have, they have to make it. So if you ask the the um, the generic question, what can a kicker do, like on a practice field? Um, and the answer is, I'm sure they can get to 70 or 72 with the right wind conditions. But the probability of that actually happening in a game is remote. The It'll stars really do have to align. Four or five yeah. stars have to align for it to actually happen. Well, let's talk about – it's a perfect segue. Let's talk about last night's game between the Buccaneers and the Patriots. Now, what was interesting about that game – I'd like to know your guys' thoughts about this. So at the end of the game, there was about a minute left in the game. And the Patriots went for a 56-yard field goal. You could say to win the game, but we have the GOAT on the, on the Buccaneers. Yeah, no, so you would have given the GOAT a minute left and a timeout. So it's not obvious it would have been a winner, which relates to my calculation. Apparently, Belichick is getting skewered for going for the 56-yard field goal. Number one, um, their kickers never made a field goal longer than 52 yards, although it got there. It hit the upright. Second, apparently it gave up 12.3% in win probability to actually go for it. Now, why would Bill Belichick do that? Like, I understand he's the greatest coach of all time, but there has to be somebody up in the booth screaming at him. Your odds just went from 34% to win this game to 22% to win this game because you're trying this 56-yard field goal. Shane, any thoughts? I mean, he's literally on the, the analytics community, let me be clear, is skewering him for going, for not going yeah, no, for the fourth no, I and mean, three. Like, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I the only kind of extra piece of information I kind of heard in my reading is that Nick Folk was kicking it like, you know, he he kicked something like a 56 or 60-yard field goal in warm-ups. So maybe that was fresh in Belichick's mind, but I don't think there's much defense beyond that because as you kind of point out, even if he had made it and he came very close to making it, it, you know, it hit off the upright, but even if he had made it, you're giving Brady a minute to, you know, you know, get the Buccaneers in the field goal range. And you got to think the probability on that's very high. I mean, probably higher even than that kind of baseline rate you gave, which is probably not built on Brady being the opposing quarterback. Right. So it's probably the differential is even higher than, and then the the kind of probability you gave. So no, I don't think it's particularly defensible. I just think he kind of made a strategic error there, which even the greatest coach of all time apparently can do. Yeah, you know, a lot of these decisions have to do with what, what Shane pointed out, uh, the feeling, the gut that they get. And I think one of the things that the analysts have generally shown is those guts just don't hold up and uh, that you really have to go with the base rates and the probabilities. And I, you're right, they aren't taking into account Brady, but I'm actually going to say that probably doesn't matter that much. I mean, what's the difference in making it up up the field for a score one minute 
versus one quarterback and another. It can't be that big a difference. That 32 to 20 probability that you mentioned, is that what you said? Is that about your yeah. That's huge. Yeah. You know, that's a, ma- that's a colossal error. Um, you'd have to have really extremely, extremely variant information. Body, you just made, just to give everyone a relative, I know this is what you're doing in your own head probably. If it's 12%, if you made that kind of error every game, you'd give up two wins. No, it's crazy. I mean, I mean, it's just a, and also you think about it in a percentage basis, 33 to 22. I mean, it's like one in three down to one in five. I mean, that's a bad error. Um, and I, it's surprising that it was made. Um, and it probably had to do with sort of miscalibration on what you think is the the true probability of the of the. Of and the let me just say, that, that for those people that watch the game, I don't know how much an impact this has. We can bring on someone that's an expert in this too. As Shane knows, it was raining pretty heavy at the time. Yeah. So you yeah. have to add on. You're also kicking a 56 yarder in pretty heavy rain. And I, I would also say, I think maybe prior to that, uh, Mac Jones had hit. I don't know, 19 of his last 20 passes. Yeah. There's no evidence that he wouldn't have gotten the fourth and three. At least, again, no, he had- I mean, the, the Patriots could have perhaps. I mean, one thing that also could factor into a Bill's decision here is, I mean, fourth and three, it would essentially have had to be a passing play. Because, I mean, I think the I think the Patriots may have finished with, like, negative one yards rushing or something. Yeah, you're not rushing they the had, ball. They had no I mean, run. Right. I mean, if you had a running game, I think it's an even more of a no-brainer to go for it on fourth and three, but they did not. So it's kind of maybe that was part of the calculation, but I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not really defending them because I, I, I was screaming at the TV. I didn't think it was the right choice. At well, the it's time. a perfect yeah, segue. I, it, I'll, you go ahead, Dottie, please. Well, I want to, you know, in, in our previous segment, we talked about the win probability of, uh, of, uh, in the baseball game of second and third bottom of the ninth one out versus bases loaded bottom, of the bottom of the, of the ninth game tied and no outs. And it turns out I actually looked that up. Um, it's actually a smart move to keep it at second and third in terms of baseline. Is it because of walks or hit by pitch or anything else? Yeah, it can't, yeah, because basically it, um, uh, it gives you that extra ability to have an extra degree of freedom to walk someone. Once you load the bases, walking someone ends the game. And when you have second and third, walking someone doesn't end the game. And that's the, that's the most likely way the game is lost uh, or ended at that time. So, we were we think it was a bad move because Judge was up, and that's the similarity with 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 Belichick making the decision. Yeah. He thinks it's a good move because the, the kickers and the special teams people are saying we're going to do this. But the right answer is baseline, and Tampa Bay did the right thing, and uh, and I think that um, that Belichick did the wrong thing. But I think he's famous for for gutting it, and he claims he doesn't use analytics, right? Well, that this was another proof of that. Guys, very related topic. And this will make Adi, I will switch to a game that Adi will be very happy about, which is the Jet game. But here's my question. Who would you consider, and this is another context-related probability question, and maybe I'll ask this for Shane because you follow the NFL, let's say more than Adi in general. Who's the best running back in the NFL right now? And there's really no debate about it. Who's the? I mean, I remember I'm giving you a hint. That, no, it's not Ezekiel Elliott. Who's no. the, I'm, I'm giving you a hint that it was in the Jet game. Who's the best yeah, running Derrick back? Henry. Derrick, Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry. Now, why am I asking that question? Well, here's why, Adi. With two seconds, I think it was, or 10 seconds left on the clock, you saw the Titans scored a touchdown to go down by one point. You have the best running back in football, who I think in the game might have run for 150, 180 yards. Would you have ever considered going for two? That's my question. You have Derrick Henry. It's not... Ezekiel Elliott, who's I think a little washed up. It's not the guys on the the you know the Patriots who haven't who've got negative one yards. You can win the game with Derrick Henry. 
I, I know how it turned out, which Hottie's happy about, but I'm not asking about that. Yeah. I'll start with you, Shane. Would you have gone for two with Eric Henry? Yes, I would have. I would have by the set, you know, logic. I mean, you know, I mean, you only have to get, you know, whatever it is, two yards or something like that. So no, I mean, I, I, I think, cause I mean, you're, you basically the baseline that's got, you know, him, Derek Henry getting two yards, even if they know a run is coming, has got to be greater than 50%. And that's kind of the baseline. If you're going to overtime, that's kind of what you're dealing with is, I mean, it can't be that much different than 50%. Why would they have any thought that they would have an advantage if it had gone to overtime? So no, I, I would have definitely gone for two there. Adi, any thoughts? I sh- were you watching the game at the time or were you seeing it? Did, would uh, you, I- yeah, so I, I don't know what to say. I, I wish, I mean, baseline suggests that uh, it's a toss up. I think it's around 50%. You're adding, you were playing the same game here. Is it because you have Derrick Henry? I think most that's of why, I, by the way, I'm hosting this show. I'm not asking you guys random questions. I'm yeah, trying yeah. to build a theme here. This we just talked theme. about, we talked uh, about the baseball second and third. Right. We talked about Belichick. I, that's All why right. I'm built. That's why I asked the question. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to shout out to my football analytics betters. Um, the Eric Eagers of the world, the Josh Herms Myers and go running backs don't matter. <laughs> and therefore it doesn't make a difference. I too would have guessed that they would have slow lined up against the run from two is different from one, by the way. Um, and that maybe their probabilities of scoring were, would be less than 50% and that they did the right thing. Yeah. So I completely agree with you that two is very different than one. As a matter of fact, I forget which game it was yesterday, but the team was lining up to kick the field, uh, extra point, kick the extra point. But there was a penalty, which means it on the other team, which means they took the extra point off the board it went to the one-yard line, and the announcers even said it then made statistical sense to go for two. From the one, yes, yes but yeah. from the two, not that obvious. So even that just one extra yard makes a huge difference. I don't know, Shane. Well, so yeah, you, you, you always have the option to throw a passing play there, right? That could get intercepted. That could be another option in your in, yeah, 3% in your chance. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty low as well. So I always say yesterday was an example, given the way the Jets won and the Giants won, both of them in overtime, any given Sunday in the NFL. Do you guys think that there's just – so we only have, I think, two two teams left that have not won any games. I know the Jaguars are one of them, although, remember, they got beaten by the Lions, and it's not – that was a close game. And I think the uh, Lions are the other team. I think the Jaguars and the Lions are the only two teams left without a win. Does that surprise you that we're four weeks into the season and that every team now is winning? And the Giants and Jets won yesterday. And the Giants beat the Saints yesterday. And the Jets beat the Titans. Those are two teams that I think, I don't know, they were in the NFL semifinals last year, right? Something like that. The Saints certainly were a very good team. The Titans were a good team last year. playoff teams at the minimum, yeah. At at a minimum. So, Shane, any thoughts about that? Is there always seeing higher variance this year? I I think you kind of summed it up with the any given Sunday. I mean, uh, yes, I I am very surprised that after the Saints went in and defeated the Patriots handily that they'd somehow then turn around and, you know, lose to the Giants, which, you know, other than that game, it looked terrible. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of very – I mean, there's – extra variation right now because we really just don't know who the good and bad teams are but even when you when you have a more solid idea of who the good and bad teams are bad teams can be good teams not not consistently but certainly it'll happen in uh, in the season repeatedly which makes again sort of these kind of uh you know 
running the table, like, you know, kind of going undefeated or something like that makes it so difficult to do. And it all, co- correspondingly, it's, it's relatively rare that, you know, there, a team is completely winless through the season. So let me ask you guys a question now that we're four weeks into the season. I'm going to ask you an unreasonable prediction question that you can't possibly, you'll have an answer to it, but you, pass, you can't possibly have an empirically great driven answer. There were five quarterbacks taken in the first half of the uh, 2021 NFL draft. I'll try to do it in order. I apologize if I've got it a little wrong, but I think I've got it in order. Trevor Lawrence by the Jaguars, Zach Wilson by the Jets, uh, Trey Lance by the 49ers, Justin Fields by the ba- Fields by the Bears, and Mac Jones by the Patriots. So I'll start with Professor Weiner, the Jet fan. If you could now redraw that draft and you're the Jets and you had the first pick in the draft based on what you've seen, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones. Any thoughts? Would you be happy with Zach Wilson? What would you do? God, that's too, that's, I think that's over my, my knowledge base. Um, it, it's hard to know. I mean, look at what's happening with Sam Darnold. He's looking like a different quarterback all of a sudden. By the way, do you know who leads the – I'm going to ask you a question. And, <laughs> and If you hadn't said Sam Darnold, do you know who leads the NFL in rushing touchdowns right now? No, I don't. <laughs> it's Sam Darnold. Sam yeah. Darnold. Okay. Sam Darnold has rushed for five touchdowns so far in the whatever four Panthers games. Yeah, I mean, so so much of what's going on is the schema that's there. It's the team that you're evaluating, not necessarily just the, the just the quarterback. And uh, and so I, that's why I really don't know how, how I would make sense of that. Um, I think at some point is Trevor Lawrence looked good. I think the answer is no. Um, it's hard to say he's with the Jaguars. They were terrible. Yeah. They're terrible this year. Um, Sam Darnold looked awful with the Jets, but all of a sudden he's, he's born again. It's not the, it's not Sam Darnold. I think he was a good quarterback. Um, and, and I just think that you just have to watch this. I think the, one of the difficulties with football is you don't have these incredibly player or contextual measures that you can use to tell you how good someone is. You know what? You don't have a 95 mile per hour with a 12 inch break or whatever that we use that we can say um, uh, how good a pitcher is or how, how well, command it's is. a great point that you raise, because actually we starting to have measures like that. In other words, given how close the defender is, we mm-hmm. do have an expected completion percentage that can be calculated. And, you know, uh, in other words, given how tight the window is and there is about the trajectory of the ball. So actually, those things are now because I haven't seen them yet for these five quarterbacks, but those things are becoming more measurable. Let me ask uh, Mr. Patriot, Mr. Six time champion, uh, Mr. Patriot there um you saw mac jones i'm sure you watched the game last night i don't know mac jones looks pretty damn good to me great so so great like like 18 passes in a row or something like that he broke tom brady he had more he has more consecutive pass streak than tom brady ever has in his career but my question to you was if i mean i know it's limited data right now but if I God gave you the opportunity to trade mac jones for any four of the people drafted before him if you're the patriots right now would you do it Oh, yeah, I think I'd probably trade him for Trevor Lawrence, even with the kind of early returns, because I, I think Audie was dead on. I mean, I think it's it's you can't you know, it, it's so much, especially these early returns when they're throwing all these rookies right into action, which is not what, you know, historically teams typically did in the NFL is, you know, I mean, it, it's you can't kind of separate out the kind of development of the quarterback from like the, how terrible their team is. I mean, Mac Jones is looking very good, but he landed on among all those teams the best team with the best coach. Right. I mean, unambiguously. 
And so, yeah, I mean, he's kind of in the best uh, um, position to succeed. I'm I'm glad he is succeeding, you know, more, I mean, not in the wins sense, but, you know, certainly he's looking great. But I mean, I think Trevor Lawrence plopped onto the Patriots, probably we'd be seeing some much more impressive stuff than what Trevor Lawrence is showing so far with the Jaguars. So guys, we only have about a minute left, but I want to get your quick 30 second take on what I consider the big game next week. And everybody would consider it the big game. The Sunday night game next week is Buffalo at Kansas City. Yep. Now that's Titanic because Buffalo's three and one, Kansas City's two and two. If Buffalo were to go into Kansas City and win that game, they'd not only be two games ahead of Kansas City, but they'd have the tiebreaker against it. So maybe just in 30 seconds or so, Shane, given what you've seen in the NFL season so far, what are you expecting in the Buffalo-Kansas City game next week? I mean, I'm glad uh, Buffalo should be happy they're playing the Chiefs now, where the Chiefs seem to be still kind of finding their legs for this season. I mean, the Buffaloes looked a lot better. I mean, I, I, I would predict a Buffalo victory, given what I've sort of seen through the first four games. But I, I, I do think the Chiefs are kind of overall still the better team. But I, I mean, I, I think Buffalo is going to go in there and beat them. And Adi, you've always been a person that said, you know, in some sense, early wins, late wins, they all count. But how much, I mean, how big is this game? I mean, just as you think about the AFC, Buffalo and Kansas City have to be the thought of at least going into the season as the two elite teams. Any thoughts there, Adi? I think they are the two elite teams. I think it's an interesting game. I think it'll be a tiebreaker if it comes down to that. And that's not unheard of in football. Um, I do. I watched I watched every minute of the um, of the of the Eagles game against the KC. And, um, you know, Mahomes is amazing. And, yeah. and their offense is amazing. I don't, I don't think the Eagles stopped them even once, um, yeah. except on, an, on one interception. But they also didn't stop the Eagles. And yeah, the Eagles yeah that's right. Their defense. And um, in fact, I think that, that game uh, didn't have a punt. It's one of the four, only four games where there was no punts, I think. And, uh, you know, and the Eagles aren't awesome. And, to, and, and, in fact, there's a couple of plays that Eagles, the Eagles should have gone toward on fourth down. They didn't. Absolutely. sort of unhappy with that. But, you know, so I'm going to go with the Bills. All right. Well, I'm going with Kansas City. I still believe in Kansas City. So, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We have an interview that Shane with Josh Polkamp Hart on Hockey Analytics. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to a special interview segment for Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports and statistics collide. I'm Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here on behalf of my co-hosts, Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Audie Weiner, who are also all professors at the Wharton School. You can catch us every week at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on Wharton Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. Our show is also available as a podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast. And as we all want to remind you every week, we welcome questions and comments either via Twitter at our handle, which is our handle, which is uh, at WMoneyBall, or you can email us. Um, we we t- try and take email questions every year. We can answer them during our open discussion segments. Uh, our email address is moneyball at warden.upenn.edu. This week, I'm excited to bring you a discussion with Joshua Polkamp Hart. Josh is a data analyst for the Boston Bruins. You can find him with at on Twitter himself with his handle, which is at J Camp Hart. So that's at J P O H L K A M P H A R T T. I also want to note that Josh is a fellow Canadian who is from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada, and we'll probably start off the discussion there. Um, Josh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, Shane. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Um, yeah, so let's start off with you with your roots as a federal, fellow Canadian, born and raised. I feel compelled to kind of start off our chat by asking you sort of how you got from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, to where you are now. Um, what got you into sports analytics and specifically hockey analytics? 
Yeah, so uh, as a good Canadian boy, I did play hockey for uh, most of my life. Uh, at my high point, I was an alternate for the Canada Games team for Nova Scotia, which gave me the great honor to be one year older than Brad Marchand and on the same uh, team, which only meant that he tried to bully me as a younger person, which is fantastic. I mean, you know, he's, uh, he's continued that long tradition of bullying people right throughout his career. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, it must have been feel nice to be in the early wave of that. That's true. Yeah, I, mean, I guess, uh, you know, bullying, chirping, probably more chirping. But um, yeah, so I took that and, you know, I went off to university and I studied math and then I kept studying and I studied statistics and then I kept studying and I was studying statistics uh, in my PhD. And uh, while I was there, the Toronto Maple Leafs hired Kyle Dubas. And uh, in doing so, there was a lot of news articles and one of them uh, called him a stats guru. And I thought to myself, well, I don't think I'm a stats guru and I'm doing a PhD. So I wonder if, you know, I, I don't I don't think I know very many gurus. Um, so maybe I can do a little better if I just help the stats hockey world. So I wrote a little uh, prospective paper on neutral zone play where I defined a few metrics based on kind of binomial distributions and uh, sent it over to the Kingston team. They didn't understand a lot about this, but the Frontenacs and the OHL and said, if I come and bring some people who will track some data, uh, will you let me do that? And they said, as long as you give us Corsi, you can do whatever you want. And uh, they were kind enough to give us a little bit of funding for pizzas for the uh, undergrads I brought with me. And we did that for a whole year. So that was my uh, my first foray. And I, I somehow shoehorned that into my thesis, my uh, on my thesis panel, they told me they weren't even going to evaluate the chapter because they said it has nothing to do with the rest of the, you know, uh, spectral estimation I was doing and, uh, you know, any time series data. They said, you, you can't predict hockey that way anyway, so what does it matter? Um, so I finished that. I went off to Apple uh, to, to work for three years and uh, I was uh, working there as a data scientist when I had been presenting some of that material at conferences and the Bruins were looking to hire and so they'd found me from one of those and uh, that's why I ended up with the job is uh, they reached out and I went through the process and I was lucky enough to start in the January of the 1819 season. So I think we went on a 20 game winning streak or, or sorry, unbeaten streak right when I started and then went to the finals that year. So I ah, couldn't I mean, have been happier, pro, you know, pro, pro, proof of a wise hire right there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And it's interesting to kind of hear that while you were sort of, you know, off kind of an industry doing your work for Apple that you sort of may essentially may, you know, kept your kept your toes in the water in terms of kind of hockey analytics and stuff like that. Were you mostly doing that kind of through sort of self-publishing uh, on, on the web or were you attending conferences or kind of how are you kind of get how are you getting yourself up the, out there so that like a premier franchise like the Boston Bruins could see it? Yeah, I think I mostly got lucky. Uh, probably like a lot of PhD students, you ride the wave of the stuff that you published or, or worked on and you kind of uh, release a lot of that. And I, I kind of followed a little bit more of the legwork that I had left over, but I realistically only looked at the research I'd done before and, and presented at several places. I got really lucky that uh, Michael Shuckers um, from St. Lawrence, he ran the conference in Ottawa and I, I presented it there and I got to be friends with him. And so he was uh, kind enough to give the Bruins my name when they were looking for candidates. Um, you know, otherwise, I, I think the thing I, I tell everybody now is, you know, I, if I had gone back, I would have done more. I would have been more engaged on Twitter and I would have been providing more information or analysis. Um, I think the big thing is you, is getting good data. You know, if you're not going to look at the NHL data, or the play-by-play, then finding other data like that OHL data I was working with is kind of the big thing that people nowadays need to be doing is right. find your own domain. Yeah, very, very cool. Very cool. 
So actually coming to the Boston Bruins, what, do, what does hockey analytics look like at the Boston Bruins? Um, and I guess without, you know, of course, I'm not going to uh, ob- give you the obligation of spoiling any secret sauce, but how do you think the kind of Bruins do, do how, how do you think uh, analytics at the Bruins look like compared to most NHL teams? So I think uh, you can see from the outside, if you look at the staffing sizes and, and who we have, we're a smaller team. There's uh, three of us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we kind of divvy up the work just between the three of us. My director is a former video coach. He's been with the team for 12 years now, and he's really, uh, really insightful in the domain knowledge. He understands the systems really well, and he's worked through uh, at least the last two head coaches we had. So he, he knows really what a Bruins system looks like, and he can really help articulate uh, the difference, you know, the, making the gap between the data and understanding, you know, what it is that we need for the team. And, and that's mm-hmm. a really useful skill to have. Uh, and so he's, he's kind of our frontline spear for a lot of that. And then uh, on, on my side, I am the data scientist uh, or data analyst. And uh, in doing so, I do a lot of the analysis and metric building, a lot of the development of, you know, what kind of uh, visualizations and things of that nature. And then we have a data engineer who handles a lot of your, um, you know, data, I guess data providing as well as he, you know, um, he builds all of our web infrastructure and things like that. So anything that you're really trying to articulate. So maybe it's automated reporting, um, you know, things of that nature. The general name of the game for us is trying to provide, you know, insightful decisions uh, for our uh, our staff. So whether it be the coaches or the managers or even down to you know the um, you know, sports science team, all we're trying to do is really allow them to use data to make decisions a little bit better than they were before. I think if you look at teams around the league, there's some teams that have spent a lot of money in this area. Um, Toronto would probably be the the biggest one. I think they have a staff of eight to 10. Uh, Carolina also has four or five, but they they have a lot of talent. And and if you look at those teams compared to ours, I think they've they've hired more. Um, We may have more degrees per person, but I don't know if that really counts for much. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and I, I was I, I was going to kind of ask to a certain extent, like, you know, the um, what what the most kind of fun aspect of your job is, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure that the kind of the, the analysis aspect, the modeling aspect of things is probably pretty enjoyable. But I at least in my own kind of professional career, I've kind of gotten a lot of fulfillment and enjoyment out of kind of trying to dream up cool new visualizations or basically ways of taking an analysis and communicating it to the people, to people that not aren't necessarily uh, don't necessarily have as many degrees. And so I don't know what what your experience kind of is with that. No, you're totally right. I think, you know, one of the coolest parts is obviously being involved in some of the discussions around, you know, player acquisitions or, you know, big team decisions, but, you know, another really key part is that light bulb moment when someone who is not ultra technical can understand something that you're trying to communicate, whether it be through visualization or through, um, you know, just a, a small report or, or, or just communicating with them directly. You know, when you can use that and they can fully understand something and it can allow them to make a better decision, that's like a clear win. And, and that's been some of the most rewarding times. And to the other flip side is some of the, you know, the most frustrating times are when you think you've done something really well. And, you know, I think everyone has five failures for every success of that sort of nature when it comes to visualization. So uh, those are always great when you show someone a random blob and they say, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> yeah, if you aren't feeling, you aren't trying, I guess. So it's good you're challenging yeah. yourself, at least in, in that respect. Uh, yeah, so I guess I kind of want to uh, next talk about basically, I mean, obviously, to a certain extent, I'm starting to, I mean, fall, 
to take a step back a little bit, fall, I think, is the best season of the year for sports. We've got playoff baseball on the rise, and we got, obviously, NFL and college football underway. But I'm also starting to get really hyped for the start of the NHL season, which I just looked at the calendar is not that far away. October 12th is when the first meaningful games start being played. Um, but before we look ahead, essentially, to the upcoming season, I want to kind of ask you to reflect back on the past couple of seasons. What has kind of stood out to you over the past few seasons um, since you've been working with, with Boston um, in terms of like how the game is changing and to what extent that change is kind of being driven by advances in hockey analytics? Yeah, I think the, the first thing that I, you know, the first real realization I have within the league is that it, it, for all the hard work we do and for everything that we prepare, it is magnificently random. Uh, you know, I think that was once I decided that, you know, I'm going to let go of each game's performance and understand that, you know, it's you could be as prepared as possible. It's still going to be a, and a random process. Uh, and I think that when I had that, it, you know, it made everything a lot easier for me. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing is hockey just feels so random. Uh, I don't I know other sports. I mean, Lopez has done lots of analysis on this, on the randomness of games and how much you need to really show a true talent winning. Uh, so I don't need to rehash that, but it, it, you can really feel it when you're out there watching every game. And um, that definitely was the first thing that came to me. Yeah, no, uh, And I mean, we talk a lot about this show generally about kind of the having to make a distinction, given the kind of inherent stochasticity of sports, having to make a real distinction between evaluating a process as opposed to evaluating the, the outcome of a process, just given that inherent randomization uh, or randomness. And I like, you know, in terms of like something that's extra magnificently random, I think we do have to kind of, this is a good time to kind of bring up playoffs in hockey in general, the playoffs <laughs> this last summer, as yeah. unpredictable as ever. I, I certainly, having uh, gone to school in Montreal, I very much enjoyed the kind of Canadians, you know, sort of surprising everyone en route to their birth in the Stanley Cup finals. Um you know, and perhaps there's been kind of with with kind of the shortened seasons and this whole COVID sort of situation, maybe there's been extra randomness thrown into the mix over the past couple of years. But even prior to that, I was, you know, I've always felt like the playoffs are kind of a nightmare as far as predictability um, in hockey. What do you think makes the playoffs so uncertain every year in hockey relative to other sports? I, I mean, I think the obvious answer is, is officiating and the style of play. You know, officiating in the sense that there are plays that you cannot do in the regular season that you can do in the playoffs. A, a lot of um, basal, basically spatial interference is is not mm -hmm. really called. And so um, in a regular season game, you might have a lot more space available, you know, through one or two strides by a, a skill player. Whereas in a playoff game, a defender is just going to stand in front of him and he's not going to let him go by. And that's not going to be called. So there's a lot less opportunity for offense than there is in a regular season game. And because of that, you have essentially a, a, a different game being played and the way you score is different. And understanding that it is a completely different game. You see that some teams who have been quite successful in the regular season, uh, Toronto last year is a great example. Mm -hmm. And they're you know, they a heavy data team. It's difficult for them to predict success in the playoffs because once you don't have the opportunities that you're expecting to have, it's no longer the same game. So some, right. you know, if I've gone and I've signed a whole bunch of high event offensive players, well, there's not going to be high events. So it's not like those players are going to succeed. 
Uh, yeah, no, I, I feel like you almost get, you know, I mean, that's, uh, it's really interesting to kind of hear that sort of space thing. And I think we'll, we should come back to that when we talk a little bit about like kind of new technology in a bit, but that space creation aspect of things and how that might be different between playoff and regular season. I would always used to think about like, you know, sort of transitioning when I would watch players, you know, play in, in the NHL versus play on the international stage, like during the Olympics or during some of these international tournaments when the ice surface is, is, is larger. There's a re- I mean, there's a tangible difference to just, you know, you know, a few feet of extra ice surface and stuff like that can make a huge difference to the style of play, as well as like, you know, obviously competitively advantage or disadvantage certain players that are kind of, you know, better able to handle that larger amount of space. Yeah. And it's very true that the NHL has actually worked away from scoring from the outside. Uh, you know, if you look, there's significantly less slap shots and there's a lot more moving the puck towards the center of the ice in the slot to try and get good opportunities, because that's essentially most teams are going to optimize an expected goals model. And any simple expected goals model is going to tell you just get it towards the middle of the net or the middle of the ice and then funnel it to the net from the slot. So if that's what you're trying to do, and in the regular season, that's easier because you can get to the middle because players can't clutch and grab and they can't, you know, cross check you aggressively in the back, then that's what you're going to do. And your whole systems are designed around that. Uh, And, you know, the alternative is you look at the teams like uh, Daryl Sutter's teams when he was in LA and they were all about funnel the puck back to the point, create shot opportunities, create chaos. And some teams are now actually moving a little bit back towards that style um, because that actually has success in the playoffs because you don't have to get to the net, right? You don't have to get anywhere close to the net to take those shots. And you look at the kind of scoring that happens for teams in the playoffs. Sometimes, sadly, that's, you know, it's ugly goals from the blue line rather than the nice goals in the slot. Oh, that, so, yeah, that's really, yeah. yeah, and it's really interesting to hear because I often, you know, I actually my next question up was going to be sort of asking you what answers kind of coming out of analytics or observations, um, you know, kind of over the last few seasons can suggest what teams can do in order to build for playoff success. The naive answer I, I, I've always had prior to, you know, our discussion was just find the, find the goaltender that's going to get hot at the right time, because that obviously seems to drive so much of, at least superficially, that seems to drive so much of success in the playoffs. But what you're talking about with kind of, you know, basically, so, you know, kind of basically looking for a style of play that's a more amenable to, to the playoff situation, that, that's a much more sophisticated answer. Well, I think there's lots of ways to succeed, too. Uh, If you look, I mean, obviously, Montreal's was we're going to be a defense first team, which is they've been done uh, fast off the rush and then have a goaltender that plays like he's 10 years younger and still winning business. Right. Like that's, you know, that's a system that could work, I think, for any team. Yeah. Great. Now, other teams will succeed, like Tampa Bay. They are just so unbelievably dynamic on offense that you can't stop them from getting to the slot. Right. That's. That's, you know, if you have significantly more skill, eventually that does still outrun, you know, even the the most clutching and grabbing. Yeah. And we've seen that problem when they beat us. You know, uh, you know, we are a defense to first team most years and even, you know, outside of our skill lines. And uh, you can't beat it when they've got four lines that are coming down at you or three lines. No, no, that that's, right. that's right. That's right. That, that, that's that's uh, that's there's you can't you can't uh, outdo that amount of talent, basically. All right, we're listening to Wharton Moneyball. I'm Shane Jensen, professor of statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here on behalf of my co-host, Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Audie Weiner. You can catch us every week at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on Wharton Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, or as a podcast wherever you acquire your favorite podcasts. As always, we welcome questions and comments via Twitter. Our handle is at WMoneyball, or you can email us. Our email address is 
moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We, this week, we're talking with Josh Polkamp-Hart, who is a data analyst for the Boston Bruins, as we kind of get hyped up for the start of the 2021-2022 hockey season. And now I want to talk about that upcoming NHL season. We can kind of transition towards looking to the future. Um, you know, first of all, I kind of wanted to ask you what, you've, what you're excited about in the upcoming season with regards to the Bruins. What are you looking for yeah. your team? Well, we made, uh, I think, the most signings. Uh, you know, free agent signings that we've made in several years, uh, basically went and got out a whole line plus one, I think. And and so I'm excited to see what they can do. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of new faces and a, a turnover. So understanding that the biggest thing I'm most excited for is player development. Um, this is a process that to me, I was the least understanding of when I came. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of expect a draft and then they talk about a player when he's in the league. And I, I'm really excited to see how we get the player from A to B. And yeah. talking to our uh, development coaches, uh, Jamie Langebrunner is our director of player development. He's really smart. And we just hired Adam McQuaid, who's a former Bruin, to work on this as well. And so uh, these guys are fantastic. And kind of talking to them about how we get those players there and looking at some of our young guys who have the opportunity to take a jump this year. Uh, Jack Studnika is a centerman who we're really hoping can do it more. Uh, Trent Frederick, again, is another centerman who's in that same sort of position. And so I'm excited to see, you know, what it is that those players can bring and how, how we can facilitate them succeeding. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I'm really glad you brought player development because it, 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 it's a real, it bugs me when people talk about how unpredictable, you know, the, how the draft, you know, how bad teams are at drafting and how like you can't, you know, you can't tell anything from a draft when there's this big sort of gap of development that happens. I mean, it, it, hockey certainly because it's a multi-season sort of effort to develop a player, but even in sports like football where the players kind of come into the league relatively quickly, there's a huge amount of role in terms of like not just, you know, drafting the best player, but kind of drafting the player that fits the best in your system or that you actually know what you want to do with. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the really good teams and certainly Boston is one of them are, are focusing more on that than just kind of trying to optimally draft, you know, based on the background, you know, when the draft happens. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's, it's a unique problem to hockey uh, in the sense that when we draft, we don't have complete developmental control from that day. Cause a lot of times prior to coming into either the AHL or into the NHL, those players play in leagues that we have no control over their coaching or their, you know, off ice. So it is a really interesting and complicated thing. And, and, you know, when you're trying to optimize for it, we had a, a research fellow work with us and, and she had a talk at the Ottawa uh, hockey analytics conference uh, this last time out. And in her research, it was looking at where do you kind of want to put your players and how should they, you know, how should they do in those places? And it was really cool to see, you know, like maybe if I have a player playing over in Europe, is it ideal for them to be getting seven minutes a night playing over in Europe as a 19 year old, or should I be moving that player over to North America, um, you know, and having them play junior or play somewhere else. And so there's kind of a, there's a lot of insights in how that works, you know, but all of it is, is, is basically out of your control. The most control you possibly could have is you bring the player into your AHL team and then you have to support them as a very young player in a very hard league which may not be the best development path either. So it's a, it's a unique and interesting problem that yeah. I think data is helping with. Yeah, no. And, and speaking of uni fairly unique and interesting problems, 
Uh, another thing, obviously, kind of looking ahead this upcoming season is that we had a brand new team join the league this summer, yeah. the Seattle Kraken. Love the name, by the way. <laughs> I, yeah. And they had their expansion draft back in July. It must be such a fascinating kind of hockey analytics opportunity to be able to essentially construct, I mean, not you know, based on the pool of all players, but to be able to essentially construct a professional hockey team from scratch. How do you see the Seattle Kraken doing in their first season or two in the league? Do they do they have any chance of replicating the pretty uh, unique success of the Vegas Golden Knights? Or uh, will they kind of probably be act like most expansion teams throughout, like, you know, kind of sports history in that they, you know, are, are, are in kind of an uphill battle to be competitive? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing is in hockey, we uh, we actually have a long history of successful playoff or sorry, uh, expansion teams in the playoffs because we did have an entire conference when that we added the teams that was all expansion teams. So they would make the finals every year and lose for several years. So just, uh, you know, the NHL has a long storied history of uh, very good expansion teams in that regard. Uh, but I think Seattle... I think they're going to be a good team, especially for, for two reasons. Uh, one is they ha- got a lot of good defensemen and they have good goaltending. So those two things are going to get you, you know, to at least a fair fight in most games, right? They're not going to give up a lot of extra goals, which is, you know, kind of your primary problem for a lot of teams that don't succeed. And uh, their, their goaltending is quite good. The other thing is that they're in probably the weakest division. Uh, I think all the California teams are not playoff teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll probably, you know, that'll be wrong and I'll look bad, but that's okay. I think that they're not playoff teams. And so it it's really certainly when I think to, of the big names out West, they're, they're not in, in, in that particular division. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so that's kind of, they have a lot of opportunity in their first year to make the playoffs, uh, which would be a great experience for them. Uh, you know, my biggest questions are probably leadership. I don't know how many, you know, they have Giordano who should be a good leader for their team. But outside of that, I don't know how much of a structure they'll have. And I, hopefully their coaches and their GM will make some significant efforts to kind of build a culture because that's the biggest thing you need to do. And I think Vegas did a fantastic job of building that right from day one. You know, I think they're a, a team Vegas is that says we're always trying to win. You know, we're never out yeah. of a game. We're always trying to win. And hopefully Seattle can temper a little bit of expectations to be as good as Vegas. But they, I think they'll still be a team that makes uh, Seattle proud in year one. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hopeful for him as well. Just in part because friend of the show, Namita Nandu Kumar is yeah. involved, has been involved in that improv, entire process. So I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that they uh, have, have some early success. Okay. I guess uh, in the last sort of five minutes or so that we have, like, I wanted to kind of look ahead even beyond sort of the upcoming season to kind of a little bit more kind of sort of the future of hockey analytics what new technology has gotten you most excited in terms of changing how we might model or think about hockey performance? Yeah. So I think the big one that everyone should know about is, you know, we have puck and player tracking data now. So there's the the RFID chips and everything, and that data, we're going to start seeing, you know, some significant changes from that. Uh, It's just like when it happened in football and and when they started using more of the track man in, in baseball that you, now that we can evaluate things at a micro level, we're going to get a lot more of that little play activity being understood and then optimized. So there could be significant changes in the near future with how uh, people talk about space. I think in soccer, you see a lot of changes and um, I think it's it's going to be a lot easier for, you know, for soccer than hockey because it's a bit faster and there's less space in general, but we're going to see some of those kind of optimizations and I think as that continues to grow, the data set grows, as well as the um, the amount of people looking at it, it's, it's going to be fantastic, the, the improvements there. 
uh, I do think that with that, there's going to be some changes just in the overall structures of how teams are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think teams did hire in anticipation of that data. But I think as they start getting into it and digging and digging, it's, you know, like a gold mine when you, you when you prospect, you, you get in, you oh, this is great. And then once you're in there, you need more bodies. And I think we're going to have a yeah. lot of that. Uh, and the decisions are going to have to be a little bit um, more data infused, too. I think our decision makers are going to have to become more educated with uh, some of the more technical aspects to understand some of this. And uh, that might be more difficult. But I think the next level of, you know, the next tier of people who are coming into this league uh, are going to be, you know, relying on some data literacy to, to work on that. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, I'm really glad you kind of came back to the sort of the, the concept of space and space creation. We came up earlier in our discussion of kind of how playoff hockey, you know, the style of playoff hockey may maybe differs from regular season hockey. I would, I, that's, I, I want to sort of see, I want to see the analytics on like how much space players can create, you know, or, or it also kind of trying to measure to find grain kind of effort, like how players are kind of like going with an even higher energy level or a higher speed level going for pucks and corners, et cetera. Cause I think that is also a style of play type thing that I differs, I think, you know, substantially between the regular season and the playoffs, but it's not easy to do that kind of, it's not e- even with that, that tracking data, it's not going to be easy to do that kind of analysis. And it really sort of, um, it's an exciting time because, you know, spatial and kind of the spatial and temp- high resolution spatial and temporal methodology is kind of, or statistics is kind of where a lot of current methodological developments over undergoing in our field right now. And so, you know, I think, you know, the, the next generation of, 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 of analysts and stuff like that are going to have to really know their stuff with that and are probably going to be the one kind of advancing the methods there. And I think sports, you know, sports has always been a great kind of place to get data to analyze, but I think, you know, it, it's especially good place to kind of for that kind of high resolution spatial and temporal kind of situations that we're, you know, we're, we're seeing in so many other endeavors right now. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right that, you know, people who, I guess the access to uh, high frequency spatiotemporal data really wasn't there for a lot of, you know, people who were training in school mm-hmm. or, you know, like if you're doing a side project, that wasn't something you really could do, you know, several years ago, there wasn't as much of that available. And I think we're seeing in soccer, there's, a, you know, reams of it now that you can get your hands on. And so you can do some more of this analysis that really wasn't available. And the, you know, the addition of a lot of computer vision that is, you know, almost democratized to the point that someone can run it on their computer, it makes it so it's almost too easy to get some of yeah. this data, uh, too easy being, you know, still relatively hard. Right. Um, yeah, and since we're talking that, about... Totally right. Yeah, yeah. And since we're talking, maybe, you know, with our kind of last, sort of last discussion item, since we're talking about data availability and, and stuff like that, I wanted to kind of uh, ask you a little bit about this slice data science competition that you uh, participate in this summer. Can you spend the last like minute or so or describing this slice data science competition to our listeners and kind of what you learned through that experience? Yeah, so Slice is a data science competition. Uh, my friend Nick Wan, who uh, was with the Reds, uh, he put it together and uh, I was lucky enough that someone backed out and I had uh, a modicum of free time this summer. And so he asked me to join uh, the competition was a two hour live coding session where you versus three other people where you had to, uh, you know, basically a Kaggle competition, you had to do a predictive analysis based on a data set you've never seen. And you had to do some visualizations as well with it. So it made for fun TV, uh, as long as your computer didn't crash doing it. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really cool, uh, mostly because it's so highly predictive in nature that you 
you don't really need descriptive statistics. You don't really, you know, need to understand what's going on so much as you need to just kind of churn out the best model. Um, and I tried to, I, I wasn't always the best predictor, but I tried to uh, at least give some descriptive analysis and, you know, kind of pull on some statistical roots to give some sense of what's happening and give good visualizations. And I think it was really um, a fun experience and a great learning experience. Uh, I was able to make the playoffs, which was great. Uh, we did have um, uh, another hockey, or sorry, another sports analyst, Ethan Douglas, make it to the finals. So uh, we, we, we did do sports well by having a couple people in there. And I'm, I'm sure uh, you guys uh, know Greg Matthews. He was another yeah. participant. And uh, Greg, uh, <laughs> Greg went down the road of, of probably being too much of a statistician. So uh, his, his models didn't turn out too well. But um, it was a lot of good fun. And I think there's going to be a season two. It's all up on Twitch if people want to watch it. Fantastic. Uh, I think they right. also have shorter versions of each episode than two hours that have little highlights. So you don't need to see two hours of people coding, which may not be everyone's tea. Excellent. That is, I mean, it sounds like good times for me, but yeah, I, I, it, it's good that there's probably some more compact representations of that as well. Awesome. Well, I guess that's all the time that we have for today. I, I obviously want to thank Josh Polkamp Hart for joining us today on Wharton Moneyball. Josh is a data analyst for the Boston Bruins, and you can check him out on Twitter at his handle at J Polkamp Hart. That's at J P O H L K A M P H A R T T. I'm Shane Jensen. You can catch myself and my co-host Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Audie Weiner every week at 8 a.m. Eastern on Wharton Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132 or throughout the week as a podcast. Hit us up with questions and comments via Twitter at our own handle, which is at WMoneyBall, as well as our email address, which is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That is it for another week of Wharton Moneyball. Join us next week as we continue to delve into the rich world of sports analytics. And in the meantime, enjoy the best season of the year for sports and statistics.